Welcome back, AIMP Nashville Pubcast listeners. We have a great episode today. My guest requires no introduction. This guy is a champion of songwriters and publishers. It is David Israelite, president and CEO of the NMPA. He gives us fresh updates from everything legal along with the future of AI and copyrights. You're going to want to check out this episode. Hey, welcome back, AIMP Nashville Pubcast listeners. We have an exciting episode today, as always, and it's going to be a fact-filled one. My friend David Israelite, he is the president and CEO of the National Music Publishers Association, mostly known as NMPA for most of us these days. Welcome aboard, David. It's great to have you back again. Thank you so much for having me back, Tim. So let's just jump into it, man. Let's hit some updates. We can start off with the CRB3. Do we have the, is a final verdict there? Do we have a true up timeline going or how's that going with us so far? Sure. So to remind people, CRB3 is the time period from 2018 to 2022. We litigated that case. We got a decision back in January of 2018. Several of the digital companies appealed that decision and that process is still ongoing. Here we sit more than five years and a few months later, and we don't have finality on what the rates have been for that period of 2018 to 2022. The good news is we believe we mostly know what the decision is going to say, and we expect that decision to come out sometime in the next, say, four to five weeks. That's our best intelligence. Once that decision comes out, there is some legal process that lasts about 75 days. And then there is what's known as a final determination where it will be published in the federal register. When that happens, then the clock starts for when the digital services have to pay us for the money that we are owed because they've been underpaying us during that time. And they will have six months to make that payment. So if you take all of the estimates and you string them together, you're probably looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of end of first quarter, second quarter next year, when the money will then be paid to the MLC for that period of time. We're coming up on the five-year anniversary of the Music Modernization Act, another great victory for us. I think that's in October. How's this looking in retrospect to you at the moment? I think that the Music Modernization Act is going to be one of the historical achievements for the music industry. There are so many things about it that have been so good for songwriters and music publishers. So let me focus on just the part of it that impacts songwriters and publishers, not the part that helped recording artists and record labels. Start with the fact that we have now stood up the Mechanical Licensing Collective or the MLC, and it is working very well. What that means to songwriters is that you are now licensing your mechanicals at zero cost to you. For every other society in the world that collects money for songwriters, they pay for the administration of that out of the royalty pool. So they take it off the top. But for the MLC, the only place in the world where that's not true, the digital companies who take the licenses are the ones who fund the MLC. So what that means is instead of paying a 10, 12, 15% commission to have your own royalties administered, you are now getting as a songwriter 100 cents on the dollar for every mechanical dollar. That is an amazing accomplishment that we should not forget about. 
You also now have a database that is public and transparent, funded by the digital companies, but owned by music publishers and songwriters. You now have an audit right, which we didn't have before. You now have a different rate standard, which means that if we do go back to a copyright royalty board trial, we have better rules about how our rates are set. And that's one of the reasons we were able to settle this current CRB term is because we had the new rate standard. And also don't forget, there were some very important protections put in the law that helped ASCAP and BMI. And we just recently saw the result of one of BMI's rate cases against live venues where they won a big increase in the rates. And now when ASCAP and BMI have to go to rate court, they are playing under different rules that are better for them. So there is so much about the Music Modernization Act to love. And I think over time, it's just going to become better and better. One other thing about it, not to forget, we have a massive problem in our industry with unmatched money. We are just a broken industry when it comes to data and knowing exactly who owns what fractions of what songs. Under the old system, that unmatched money stayed at the digital companies and never was paid out. Under the new system, all of the money is paid out. It's identified publicly. Anyone can look at the list of unmatched songs and make claims. And after a very vigorous process of trying to find the right owners, that money now makes its way to our industry instead of staying back at the digital companies that couldn't match. And the MLC is already doing a better job of matching than the digital companies ever did before the MLC. So we're matching better, plus we have all the money in our pockets. And so that those are some really big advantages also from the MMA. I want to jump into the, the hot topic waters of AI. I know you uh, recently wrote a letter that I read about AI and the U.S. Uh, Copyright Office. So I don't even know where to really start, but how do you see this playing out in the world of, of uh, I don't know, copyright, man? I, this is this is an interesting topic because I have used chat by GPT. I've had it write me a country song. They're not horrible. It's not great. But this is coming quick and fast on our uh, in our society. So what are your thoughts and opinions of AI and copyright? So this is a giant topic. I think that this topic has quickly become the number one topic of discussion in the music industry. I've given several speeches now on many topics, and the questions at the end have focused almost exclusively on the AI issues. And I can understand why. Um, I have several thoughts to share about AI, but let me start with this. I don't think it's very useful for us to complain about the existence of it. It's here. We're not going to stop it. We're not going to control it. And so it doesn't do a lot of good to whine about it. Um, it feels very similar to when people stopped buying physical copies and went to digital streaming, which had maybe different economics. And everyone said, oh, it's how terrible that people aren't buying CDs anymore. Well, yeah, CDs might have been better economics, but we weren't going to change consumer behavior in that regard. We're not going to stop AI here. The second thought is that I think we in the music industry need to learn a lesson from our history and from all copyright industries, which is that sometimes we look backward and say, we wish we would have engaged this technology in a more productive way earlier instead of 
fighting it for many, many years, and then finally begrudgingly accepting it. I think that's been true in the music industry. It's been true in larger copyright industries. And so when I think about the AI challenges, I really think about them in three different buckets. I think about the legal questions, which we can talk about. I think about the policy questions. What is the government going to do or how can the government engage in a way that's helpful? And then finally, I think about the business questions, because I think those are very separated buckets of issues. Um, and it's also important to think about AI separately in terms of the inputs that go into AI technology and the outputs that come out of AI technology, because the issues involved there are also very different. And so AI is already here. I think that I've talked to many songwriters and it is currently a significant tool being used by songwriters today. And the technology is only going to get better. I've done several live demonstrations where I've had AI write a song on the spot. And you're exactly right, Tim. The product is shockingly good for where it is today. And it's just in the infancy stage of where the technology is going. Is there anything else that's uh, on forefront of your agenda that we should be aware of and can help with? Yes, I, there, there are a couple things I'd, I'd like to raise. First, um, we have, you, you talk about fighting to get to a good outcome. We spent years and years fighting with social media companies about their need to license music. If you go back to the very infancy of YouTube, NMPA litigated for four years, I believe, against YouTube before we were able to work out a licensing deal that today has led to a, a, a relationship. Um, Facebook, you know, there was a period of time where massive amounts of, of DMCA takedowns were sent before we got to a period of a licensing period. If you look at the landscape of social media today, most of the social media companies license music. Now we can debate whether they pay enough. We can debate whether or not we like the methodology that that money is distributed, but they're licensed. The one mainstream social media company that has not yet licensed music is Twitter. And there is a massive amount of music on Twitter. And so I expect that the conflict with Twitter will continue um, and that I am hopeful that Twitter will do the right thing, which is the same thing that companies like YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and Twitch and Triller and Roblox and Peloton and others have done, which is ultimately licensed music. Instead of trying to get away with using music as part of your business plan, but not paying the creators of music. So that's number one is Twitter. The second thing that I want to raise is that I think that from these other companies that I mentioned and many others, there is a soft war going on over how songwriters and music publishers get paid for models that I will call synchronization models that are mass synchronization models. If you think about synchronization, it is the only real area for music publishers and songwriters where we are in a free market. Our mechanicals are governed by a compulsory license since 1909. Our performances are mostly governed by consent decree since 1941, but our synchronization right has never been regulated by law, by consent decree. And in that synchronization market, there developed over a long period of time, a point of view that the song is just as valuable as the sound recording of that song. 
And so for the history of synchronizations, where you want to use a song in a TV show, a movie, a commercial, you have to negotiate the price with both the publisher and the record label. And what happened in that free market? The money was split 50-50. Songwriters and publishers got the same value from a synchronization as artists and record labels did for the sound recording of that song. When mass synchronization started to develop as a thing, and maybe YouTube was the first real place that that happened, there started to be a conflict over whether or not that same kind of market force would apply where the values were equal. And I think that we are seeing a struggle to make sure that songwriters and publishers are getting fair value from mass synchronizations. In my mind, it is exactly the same as single synchronizations, which is that we're both in a free market, the values are equal. So there's no reason why mass synchronizations for things like TikTok, Facebook, YouTube should be any different. But yet I feel like songwriters and music publishers need to be very aware and thoughtful about that proposition because again, we're in a free market. So every publisher will make his or her own decision about what to license and at what terms. But I don't see any reason why the market should produce any different result for a mass synchronization than it does for a single synchronization. But it's something that I feel is becoming a bigger and bigger conflict as some of these mass synchronization markets start to grow. feels like now in our marketplace there at least in my 30 years of being in the music business there are more and more bogus infringement cases and i'll clarify i'll start this what i've noticed is because access can be proven or i'll use that word loosely you can claim that's a better word you can claim access now because of all the digital distribution and we are dealing with more and more lawsuits that take more and more of our time. And it's really become a big challenge for us as publishers and a very expensive one, I might add. Do you see anything that we can do here on bogus claims? It's a great question. It's a very relevant topic for today's music industry. It's sometimes an awkward topic because it sometimes involves my members fighting against my members. Um, you know, by definition, if we're talking about bogus claims, then it becomes easy because we're talking about claims without merit. The problem is you don't always know what is a bogus claim. And so it's difficult to draw rules um, about that that clearly define the difference between a claim that has merit and a claim that doesn't have merit. In fact, that's what the courts are for, is to make that distinguishment between what is a real claim and what is not. Um, I agree with you that the proliferation of these types of claims and clearly more claims without merit are, are being filed. And it's something that is a real threat to legitimate creators. Um, you know, I don't have any magic bullets that are answers for that. I think you see a lot of songwriters taking steps to try to insulate themselves from these types of bogus claims. So you see a lot more of... Um, taking evidence of the creative process. Some writers even record that process or take notes about that process. That's helpful. Um, but ultimately, you're right. Sometimes the threat of litigation or the cost of litigation leads to settlements that maybe are based on claims that wouldn't ultimately win in court. That's been true about our court system um, forever. 
So I'm concerned about it. I don't have any great answers about what to do about it. Um, we did create a small claims court process for certain claims that are of lower dollar value, although the ones that probably you're most worried about or I'm most worried about fall outside of that scope. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's definitely an issue. And um, the other thing that I think is true is that you going in front of juries with some of these questions is really a tricky thing because you can see how an outcome might not be based on what most people in the music industry would consider to be a legitimate claim. So sometimes, as you know, because we are on the forefront with writers and sometimes they feel a little helpless and you're always great at this. What are some of the top things you would suggest? Because that's kind of my audience is upcoming writers, artists and publishers. What are some of the top things we can be doing to play their part, to help you out and to be forward in some of these conversations we've been talking about? Oh, I appreciate that. I mean, if you're a publisher, obviously, um, join, be active in NMPA, AIMP, organizations that advocate on your behalf. If you're a production music publisher, join PMA as well. If you're a print music publisher, join MPA as well. If you're a church music publisher, join CMPA as well. All of those organizations work together well and fight to make sure that we're protected. If you're a writer, then join a songwriter advocacy organization. Obviously, NSAI in Nashville is a preeminent songwriter organization that does a great job protecting interests. Most of the time, when we need to call songwriters and publishers to arms, it will be through those organizations. And so it is not so easy to get our community to stand up and get organized, but it is easier if you're an active participant in these advocacy organizations that then can communicate with you and coordinate activity for when we need it. So that would be my number one point of advice is to get active. Number two, and you know, this will fall on probably deaf ears because the people that are going to do this probably already do, and the people that aren't going to do this probably never will. But if you're a writer, you need to focus on your business. And that means being educated about a lot of these issues. Because if you're educated about how it works, then when there's a problem that needs to be addressed, you're in a better place to help us fight. So that means understanding what a CRB is and what it does understanding what PROs do and what the issues are there, um, making sure that you are dealing with your split issues in the studios, because one of our biggest issues still is the culture in the music industry where people leave a process that creates a sound recording and they don't yet know what the splits are. It's less of a problem in Nashville, but still a problem. And so those are the types of things that I would recommend anyone listening to this podcast would do, but yet if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already do those things. The AIMP Nashville Pubcast is hosted by yours truly, Tim Hunzey. Producer, Brandon Harrington. Mixing and editing by Casey Porter. And this has been a Dime Collective production. <laughs>